Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Good evening and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website economyofone.com and economyofone.com as is our Facebook. Joining me now is Dr. Dean Waldman. He's the director of the Center for Healthcare Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's a retired pediatric cardiologist and system theorist analyst for American Healthcare with over 37 years of clinical experience, author of the award-winning print books including The Cancer in the American Healthcare System and the ebook series titled Restoring Care to American Healthcare. Dr. Dean, welcome back to Economy of One. I'm happy to be with you, Gary. I, uh, you know, we, we've talked several times and, and uh, uh, it's, it's almost overwhelming what's going on. I almost don't know where to start, but uh, let's start with, with uh, Congress. We'll get into to, uh, Bernie Sanders' plan in a minute. Um, what, what do you see happening in, in Congress with uh, uh, I don't want to call it a repeal and replace, but uh, uh, a modification of of the Affordable Care Act. It's uh, that's exactly what it is. It's uh, a an amendment, um, and actually, a couple of the things they're doing are uh, good. The problem is that they're going to turn around and say, "Oh, well, you see, we kept." The only reason they're doing this is because we they want to be able to say we kept our promise and we repealed Obamacare, Mm -hmm. even though they didn't. Because what you're talking about is called Cassidy-Graham, also H.R. 1628. Bottom line is that, uh, and if you want to go into detail, I'll I'll be happy to do it. I think it's unlikely to pass, but uh, I know for a fact that both President Trump and Vice President Pence are working the phones aggressively. I've had a number of people call me. Uh, they're working the phones to say, hey, you got to do this. We have to be solid. We have to uh, deliver on our promise to America. And so you got to vote for this. And my response is, well, look at it this way. Imagine a doctor said to you, you know, you got this big tumor and it's a cancer and I'm going to I'm going to cut out 5%. And, and <laughs> you know, that's better that's better than leaving 100% there. And as a physician, I'm sitting here going, look, the patient has cancer. The cancer are the federal mandates, all of them, that control both the supply side and the demand side of what is laughingly called a market uh, in healthcare, because it isn't a free market by any stretch. And um, they're gonna turn around and say, see what we did, we gave the states flexibility, when in fact the mandates remain intact so the states don't control 
uh, their insurance packages. They don't control eligibility. They don't control verification. So the bottom line is this is really a game of optics, not a game of problem solving. And that's why I actually resent this continued effort on the part of Congress to make it look as though they're doing what we need them to do, but not doing it. I find it interesting and also very telling of the mentality or attitude of people in Congress, because when they absolutely positively knew the president would veto it, they had no problem sending a an Obamacare <laughs> repeal. That's right. Yes, you are. You are dead right. And the real reason, and I, it pains me to say this, but the real reason is they are much more interested in protecting and actually expanding their control of health care mm-hmm. than they are actually in solving the American people's problem. And the American people's problem is really very straightforward. We have so much money that we are spending on the bureaucracy of health care that is not available to actually pay the doctors and nurses and mm-hmm. hospitals and wheelchair manufacturers, and they want to preserve their control of the system. You know, I keep saying, and and it's fairly clear why they won't do it, I keep saying, look, just let the states decide how they want to handle health care within their own borders. And if there are small states that want to get together and have a regional system, that should be their choice, their preference. uh, They should have the right to do so. But Washington wants control over what is now over $3 trillion a year of spending, where close to half of that goes to the federal bureaucracy. That's incredible. You know, I did read your your, uh, commentary, uh, I think it was last week, and where you talked about the states and how the states could um, not really opt out necessarily, but reduce their exposure. uh, Yes. Through, yes. through waivers. How does, is, is that in the current law or is that in the, the one they're talking about? That's, that's actually fascinating. The answer is that there is a waiver process in virtually uh, all uh, laws, whether it's environmental or healthcare or whatever. They all ha- in, involve some waiver process. The waiver process in general is, well, we're going to let the states do a demonstration project to show how they might be able to do it better than the federal mandates of whatever, you know, clean water or health care. And uh, there is one in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, but that waiver is virtually useless because they stuck things on it like saying, well, you can have a waiver, but you can't take care of less number of people than what Obamacare would do. You can't give benefits that are any less than the ones that Obamacare offers, even though people want uh, different things than what Obamacare is. However, what I said in that article and you're referring to is the original Medicaid law back in 1965 had a waiver process called the 1115 waiver. It's named by the section within the law that it that you find it. So it's section 1115. And that allows you to waive pretty much anything in Obamacare laws. So what I said in that article was, you know, we should, we, the states, should be sending um, these waiver requests to Washington. President Trump in his first, literally the first 
uh, executive order that he gave on January 20th, I don't know, maybe two, three hours after inauguration, says to all federal agencies, including Center for Medicaid and Medicare, give preference to any waiver that gets rid of the federal mandates from Obamacare. So the states are in a really good position to turn around and say, hey, the president said that CMS should should let us do it. So let's waive, oh, the eligibility for the able-bodied, because let's face it, the law was intended for the unable, not the able-bodied. Or let's tighten verification. Uh, there was a paper uh, that came out of Arkansas a couple of, I don't know, maybe two years ago that showed that 4% of all people on Arkansas Medicaid didn't live in Med- in Arkansas. Oh. Well, <laughs> so so if they had simply been uh, closer in, or allowed to be more accurate in their verification of the people who are actually eligible uh-huh. by rules, uh, they would have saved something like $300 million. So Uh, For the state of Texas, I actually did the math, and it's almost a billion dollars that we could save if simply we got a waiver to allow us uh, accurate verification. So a long-winded answer to your question, the states should be asking for these waivers to get out from under the federal mandates. Now, the real answer to the problem is to simply have Congress repeal all these damn mandates and let Texas do what it wants, let California they want a single payer. I happen to know the evidence shows it won't work. But so what? That should be California's choice, not Texas's choice or Washington's choice or Congress's choice. It should be California's choice. Uh, as far as you know, uh, are there states out there uh, applying for these waivers under those, yes. those sections? Yes. And not only uh, there are several states, the the one that has the best waiver right now is actually the state of Maine. Uh, it's got a waiver that asks for work requirements for people who are uh, getting Medicaid, a time limit on the amount of support that people can get, uh, tight eligibility, all sorts of really good things that they need to make their system sustainable and still be able to give the benefits that the really needy people uh, require just you know, to survive. So uh, that's a good thing. I can tell you that the state of Texas is considering, we don't yet, uh, we haven't sent one in, but is very strongly considering the exact same thing, getting out from under the federal Mm -hmm. mandates. So that's great. Uh, The problem is they're all temporary. Yeah. 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 And you did want to bring up, and I, and I do want to get it on on the record, you you know, uh, Bernie Sanders is yep. making this big push, the single payer, and you know, uh, I wrote a whole book entitled "Single Payer Won't Save Us." It's actually an ebook. It's like four bucks, and I encourage people to read it just because the evidence is there. It's enough of this garbage to say, think of all the money we'll save. Well, okay, you want to save money with single payer? Yes, you can save money with single payer. How? The single payer save money. It rations health care. Right. It says, you know, over the age of 65, uh, too bad. If you need heart surgery, go die. <laughs> well, if if the American people want that, then they have to um, vote it in. But they damn well better know what they're voting for when they vote for single payer. And they're voting for government rationing of their care. You know, it's, uh, I read Bernie Sanders 
uh, editorial in the New York Times a few days ago. Yes. And yes. He, 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 fall, he, he, he pushes the, the common thing that drives me nuts, and he interchanges the phrase health care with health insurance. And, of course. And, you know, that, that's, yes. that's always the bait and switch. Everybody deserves health care as a yes. human right, you know. It's, and, fu- it's funny you should use that term because I have an article that should be coming out uh, in USA Today shortly entitled uh, Medicare for All is Bait and Switch. And you're exactly right. Yep. It is. Firstly, it's not Medicare for All. What he's really saying is Medicaid for All, yeah. a.k.a. single-payer. And the single payer, he says, will only cost an additional $1.5 trillion, <laughs> which, of course, is going to raise our taxes. But the, yeah. the, the CBO estimate of his original plan, which was, I don't know, a year and a half ago uh, of this, was somewhere around $15 trillion. Now, think about what that's going to do to the middle class taxes. He says, oh, we're going to get it from the rich. Well, they are not stupid in Washington. They know where the money is. You know, the Willie Sutton rule. Why do I rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, the money in the United States is in taxing the middle class. So anybody who says, oh, I want single payer because then my health care will be free. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, you're going to pay through the nose through your taxes. And that's how you're going to get, quote, free, end quote, health care. Even worse, you'll pay with your health. And unfortunately, yeah, there's a there's a thing that I talk about that that really people need to know, because it's a big deal in Canada as well as Great Britain, which is death by queuing. And it is what the VA system uh, audit showed. And I quote their internal report, which said three hundred and four thousand U.S. veterans may have died waiting that's 300,000. That's six times the number of people who died in Vietnam yep. may have died waiting for their care because uh, they ration care in a single-payer system. Yeah, absolutely. We've been speaking with Dr. Dean Waldman. He's a director of the Center for Healthcare Policy at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, author of the award-winning print books, including The Cancer in the American Healthcare System, which, Dr. Dean, I did my homework. You told me to get the book oh, and read it, and I got it, and I read it. It's a terrific book. Uh, we'll, we'll dig into the details of that uh, next time. I'm also going to pull up the uh, the single-payer won't save us oh, dude, uh, book, dude, dude. and uh, we'll chat on that. Uh, as always, very informative. I appreciate all the work you're doing for us and on our behalf, and appreciate your time away from your family tonight, and uh, hope I can chat with you again soon. I look forward to it, and I certainly wish well to all of my colleagues around the whole country, namely the American people who I call we the patient. (laughs) That's a great line. I will keep that. Thank you so much, Dr. Dean. We'll talk again soon. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Well, one of the things that Florida needs uh, a lot of, and that's electrical workers, people that are trained to rewire stuff, okay, get the grid back up and working. But yet, <clears throat> um, 
Electrical workers in Florida are getting two and three times their normal hourly wage. Now, they're regarded as heroes. But isn't that price gouging? They're getting three times their wage? Price gouging? Now, the economics is clear on this. This proves my point exactly that the demand has to fit the supply. So based on the demand and based on supply, we reach an equilibrium in prices. An electrical worker isn't going to upset his life, her life, travel to Florida, deal with 15, 16, 18-hour days in the hot weather, getting the grid back up and running for the normal wage that they would get at home. This is a perfect example. Normal workers get 25 bucks. These people are getting 50 and 75 and $100 an hour to do that kind of stuff. Now, same with construction workers. Thousands and thousands of, of jobs there. Houses need repairing, that kind of stuff. Not going to get them unless you pay for them. Give it some thought. How is this different than a generator or anything else? I got to give credit to a sheriff in Ohio. Sheriff Richard Jones down in Butler County. I guess that's down by Dayton somewhere. And uh, he says his deputies won't carry Narcan, a drug that can almost miraculously reverse overdoses of heroin and opiate pain medications that might otherwise be fatal. It's 40 bucks a dose. And uh, the drug uh, is a generic naloxone. Nalox. How do you pronounce that? Naloxone. Okay. Uh, Too expensive to keep using on the same drug users. They've got people down there. They've they've resuscitated or revived 20 times. Sheriff said it's time for those people to take responsibility for their behavior and not sucking money away from the taxpayers. I agree. I agree. Why should you and I have to pay for that? 20 times, really? 20, 20 times you've been revived with uh, that drug? Now, $40 is pretty cheap if it saves your life, but sooner or later, you got to be held accountable for your actions. Good going, Sheriff. I support you 100%. Coming up next, Dan Mitchell, Chairman of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. We'll talk to Dan next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Dan Mitchell. He's chairman of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. His work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Forbes, USA Today, and Investors Business Daily. You can find the collection of his work on his blog, International Liberty, at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. Dan, welcome back to An Economy of One. Uh, glad to be on the program. I appreciate it. You know, I read all your stuff. My my producer puts everything in front of me, and and uh, I think last time I mentioned that you're a very prolific writer, and and you commented that the bad news was there's too much to write about. 
there's too many bad things to comment on and and uh, write about. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit tonight uh, about uh, uh, tax reform, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, we've seen uh, Congress uh, dink around with the Affordable Care Act pretty much since uh, President Trump got inaugurated. Uh, where do you see tax reform? Do you see it happening by the end of the year? Do you, I mean, what's, what's going on in Congress right now? Well, there's three potential outcomes. I'll try to describe them very succinctly. Uh, the first outcome uh, is that nothing happens. Uh, Republicans can't get their you-know-what together, uh, and we wind up just continuing, just like with Obamacare, continuing with the bad status quo. Uh, the second option, which is my optimistic uh, case scenario, is that Republicans actually do come to some sort of agreement that this so-called six-party talks uh, with uh, the top Republicans on the Hill and the top two uh, Trump administration officials. Uh, they agree to cut the corporate tax rate. They agree to scale back a couple of deductions. They throw a couple of other things into the mix. And presto, we have a, we have a tax cut package, which might not be as bold or exciting as we would hope for, but it's still something that would be good for the American economy. And then there's what I would call the pessimistic scenario. And this is where Trump sort of does uh, what he did on the, on the debt limit, where he winds up cutting a deal with uh, Schumer and Pelosi. He gets a small reduction in the corporate tax rate, and the Democrats get a whole bunch of so-called stimulus spending, an infrastructure package, uh, an increase in the capital gains tax on carried interest. So uh, yeah, a, a package that might have one or two things we like, but would also have maybe four or five things that are not good uh, for our free enterprise system. Uh, and, and it's unclear of those three options I gave you. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know which one would be the favorite right now in terms of uh, most uh, the highest likelihood of getting enacted. You know, it seems like everybody, though, um, kind of – always mentions a lower corporate tax rate uh are, are the 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 other side of the aisle are the democrats in that same boat just different numbers i mean i've heard everything from 10 to 15 percent to you know high 20s from from paul ryan um it, is there any type of consensus on on anything there well the good news is that even the democrats have agreed that our corporate tax rate is too high. We have the highest corporate tax rate in the industrialized world. Mm -hmm. And depending on how you count a few severance taxes in third world countries, we arguably have the highest corporate tax rate of any place anywhere in the entire world. Mm -hmm. Now, that's obviously not good for American job creation, American competitiveness. It makes it hard for U.S. companies to earn market share abroad. Uh, and so even the Obama administration was talking about lowering the corporate tax rate. And even Democrats on the Hill, I mean, they're, they're fighting using the old class welfare arguments against lower capital gains taxes, lower double taxes on dividends. They want to keep mm -hmm. the top tax rate where it is right now. You know, they have no problem fighting against those things. But even the Schumer and Pelosi crowd recognize that maybe it's not a good idea to have the highest corporate tax rate in the, in the world. Now, that's the good news. Let me give you the bad news. They might be willing to play ball on the rates, but there's something called the tax base, 
the definition of taxable income. And usually the Democrats on the Hill who are good on the rate, or at least open on the rate, they want to do things like expand worldwide taxation. They want to do things like increase taxes on corporate investment. Uh, so, so you might get a little bit of money uh, in your left pocket, but they'll take more money out of your right pocket. And so it would be basically a wash in terms of whether or not the corporate tax system was better or worse at the end of the day. Now, one of the columns I read of yours uh, a week or so ago, you talked about um, closing loopholes. And I got to tell you, I had to read that a couple of times to kind of get in my mind whether I agree with you or not uh, on that, because a loophole, a deduction is not necessarily a loophole. And uh, I, 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 in reading your stuff, I, I've seen where, you know, you, the, you wouldn't mind in, in the tax reform getting rid of some of the deductions, getting rid of some of the things that in order to take full benefit of, you got to have a much higher income. Um, what, what's what's your, your thoughts on that? I mean, because I pay a lot of money in taxes and any type of tax reform, I'm going to compare it to last year's checks that I wrote. And I don't yeah. mind giving up deductions, but if they went to, you know, a 15% flat tax that you file on a postcard like Steve Forbes used to talk about, I, I, I'm, I'm in. I'd go for that. No, you're exactly right. But, but, but let me back up for a second, because here's probably the most important thing for your listeners to understand. The definition of a loophole depends on where you start. Okay. Our friends on the left believe in a tax system that automatically has double and triple taxation. So they view a, a what's called a preferential capital gains tax rate. Mm-hmm. They view that as a loophole. Those of us who are on the free market side, we don't believe in any double taxation. So we start with a benchmark when we measure loopholes uh, we assume that there should be no capital gains tax whatsoever. So the fact that there's a capital gains tax of 23.8%, we view that as a penalty. They view it as a loophole. Okay. Now, to be fair, there are some things that both sides agree are loopholes. The health care exclusion, the state and local tax deduction, things like that. Uh, and, and, and by the way, what I say over and over again, and I hope it came through in the column you were reading. If not, I have to go back and make it very clear. <laughs> I do not want to get rid of any loopholes, even the ones I don't like, unless every single penny of revenue is used to lower tax rates. Yes. I do not view tax reform in any way as an exercise that gives more money at the end of the day to politicians. Right, right. And you make that very clear, and that's – that's a point we've made here several times is um, ultimately government spending has to has to come down, has to stop, uh, not stop, but be reformed tremendously. Um, that being said, um, what's your thoughts on on President Trump uh, putting out the statement or the tweet, however he did it, about not having a ceiling on the national debt? I mean, I, I understand we'll never pay that off. You know, I, I'm a little cynical that way. But at least having a ceiling now and then brings up the subject so people talk about it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, and as a matter of fact, a few years ago, I wrote a column where I made the point 
that, yes, debt limit fights are messy. And, yes, debt limit fights sometimes cause a little bit of unease in financial markets. But for the same reason you just mentioned, it's good to have those fights because if we don't ever have those fights, maybe we'll never fix this giant entitlement problem we have that in the long run is a huge threat to our economy. And I made the point in this column that I'm referencing that if you go back to, say, 1990 in Greece, Mm-hmm. If they had something akin to debt limit fights, then maybe, just maybe, Greek politicians would have been forced to address the fundamental imbalance they had with government being too big and growing too fast. But they didn't have a debt limit. There was nothing to force them to actually consider their fiscal situation. And so the debt kept building, government kept growing, the taxes became more onerous, and sooner or later, just as will happen to us if we don't fix things, Greece hit a brick wall and all of a sudden had a, had a crisis because nobody trusted to lend them money anymore. Uh, and, and I think it would have been good for Greece to have painful, messy fights 15 years ago to avoid the gigantic depression that the Greek economy is in now. And likewise, I want us to have those fights, even if they're messy today, right. because I want to protect us from the horrible consequences of becoming Greece part two. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, the number, first of all, is so big, it, the the human brain can't hardly get around it. But uh, to have no ceiling on it, um, to me, is is like giving them a blank checkbook. I mean, they, there's just no accounting for it at all. Uh, along that same line, you wrote another, I read all your stuff. You, you got to trust me on this, Dan. But you wrote a column that uh, uh, it was kind of surprising that uh, you and Joe Biden uh, agreed on something, and that was uh, the the fact that a uh, uh, basic income to everybody, regardless of of who they are or what they do in the United States, was uh, long term and probably short term uh, a pretty bad idea, isn't it? Yeah. Well, first, uh, just just by way of background, in case some of your listeners aren't familiar with this, there's this growing idea, especially out of Silicon Valley, for some reason that the government should give every single American a basic income. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, we should all get maybe, you know, uh, $15,000 a year just for living. Uh, and that way, uh, you know, we would never have to worry about providing for our basic needs. Uh, now, there's a couple of problems with that. You know, where the heck do you get the money? Because even if you get rid of all the existing welfare state programs, that's not nearly enough money to finance, you know, giving every American $15,000. Right. But Joe Biden made a point that I think is very important about culture, about character. Yep. People don't want to be given things. They want to earn things. We, we, we take pride and we, and we feel... We feel accomplishment at the fact that we go out and we earn income. We're producing something. We're not a burden on society. Now, you know, maybe if we were handicapped or disabled or something, we wouldn't feel guilty. But most people uh, feel guilty if they're just just living off the labor of others. And Joe Biden understands that. And I give him credit for it because he realizes that there is an intrinsic value to work, to being a productive member of society. In reading through that, I couldn't help but but think of uh, one of the statements that has stuck in my mind from Ayn Rand, one of my favorite authors, that said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, there's there's essentially no worse deprived human being out there than a man than a man who has no purpose. 
and doesn't produce anything. And I think you're absolutely right. From the time we're little, we want to do it ourselves. We want to want to accomplish something. And uh, I think it would only take a generation or two before nobody wanted to do anything anymore. Just watch the cash a check and play video games. Yeah, now, now, now I, I, I tried to be very fair in that column. Mm-hmm. There's no question the existing welfare state is dysfunctional. And, and the highest tax rates in the country are for people on welfare who want to actually make something of themselves and go to work. Because right. you go to work, you start paying taxes, and the government takes away your benefits. So, so you're actually sometimes can, you can go backwards in your living standards. So, yes, our existing welfare system is a horrible mess. The implicit tax rates are absurd. We have an army of bureaucrats for these dozens and dozens of programs. So, so I understand why some people are attracted, attracted to the idea of a basic income. But, boy, at the end of the day... I'd rather another country experiment it with it, and then we can see the results before we go down that path ourselves, because I just don't think it'll work. Yeah, well, this time it'll be different. You know that. So, mm-hmm. uh, Dan, I really appreciate your time. I don't get to talk to you very often. I got about a minute. I'd like to switch gears one more time, because you had a fascinating article uh, talking about um, uh, your friend Matt Kibbe and his uh, battle with cancer and how the FDA and, and drugs are used and how people should should be able to uh, kind of decide a little bit, be involved more in their treatment and experimental drugs. Well, it's, it's a very simple issue. If you have a life-threatening terminal illness, shouldn't you have the freedom to, to decide with your doctor, well, here's an experimental medication. We don't know mm-hmm. if it'll work. And heckly, it might even make things worse. But shouldn't you be the one that has the right to try? And I pointed out in the column that a huge amount of drug use in America, we're not talking illegal, we're talking medical drugs, prescription drugs, a huge amount of prescription drugs are actually prescribed for what's called off-label uses. So we already have, with our doctors, the right the so-called right to try, but we only have the right to try with the drugs that the FDA has already approved. So why not extend that freedom to people who otherwise will die for sure? To me, it's a slam dunk issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I, I've been around people in that situation and yes, they want to try to save their own life, but they also have a certain nobility of that experiment, maybe helping the next generation, helping somebody else. So uh, I agree with you. I just wanted to take a minute and have you have you bring that up. I was all over the board tonight. Um, been speaking with Daniel Mitchell. He's the chairman of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. You can find the collection of his work on his blog, International Liberty, at danieljmitchell.wordpress.com. Dan, as always, it's a real treat for me. I appreciate all your time. I appreciate all the work you do every day. And uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Great. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Dan. Have a good evening. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. 
Just got done talking with Dan Mitchell. He's the chairman of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. Look his stuff up. He's a good writer. Very prolific. He writes stuff all the time. You know, one of the things, uh, the last subject we talked about was people making a choice to try treatments and experimental drugs and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't want to say necessarily at the end of their life, but pretty much at the end of their life when uh, they have a terminal disease and and nothing left to lose. And, and you know, I got no problem with that. I, 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 I think it's noble. I think it's it's uh, human. I think that uh, it's good that they want to try things. And who knows? You know, it might work. It might work. But it's personal responsibility. And this is, this is another way for the government not to let you make your own decisions. Um, the government bureaucrats deciding what they think is best for you, not what you think is best for you. A little bit later tonight, we're going to talk about making people personally responsible for their behavior and their decisions. And I think that's, that's uh, mandatory. And instead, everybody's a victim. Nobody's responsible. It's nobody's fault, blah, blah, blah. And you and I end up paying for it. So when it comes to the end-of-life decisions, um, you know, it's, it's funny I'm going to make a statement. I'll probably get some emails on it. But when I was in high school, we talked about um, um, euthanasia. And I was totally against it. As I've gotten older, as I've experienced a whole lot more life, um, I understand it a lot better. And uh, there are things in life worse than dying. And I just think it ought to be up to the individual. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.